you're listening to the Word of Life AG podcast. We're so glad you're getting caught up on the message. This week, Pastor Tom Wood brought us a great message all about revival that he titled Generation Restoration. Let's check it out. Oh, good morning, Word of Life. So glad that you were able to come and be a part of um, the weekend here with us. Um, I don't typically do this. This is not something that, you know, happens every week um, out of routine, but I want to take a moment, and if you wouldn't mind, could uh, we stand and pray as we get into today's message? So why don't you go ahead, stand, and uh, let's take a moment, and let's pray, because I want to believe that God's going to do something incredible in the lives of His people. So Lord, we're here. We're here to meet with you. We've set aside this time. We could be doing any number of other things, but despite the busyness of our calendars, despite all the things that are vying for our attention, we're here. Lord, I hope we're here with the intention and the heart of encountering you, of praising you, worshiping you, and all hopefully something that I'm going to be sharing, hopefully something from the scriptures that we'll be looking at will be challenging, hopefully encouraging, hopefully bring a fresh perspective. Lord, I believe by faith that you are moving in this place, that you are moving in this community, that you are bringing people home, that you are restoring and repairing the broken relationship between yourself and humanity because of what happened on the cross. Lord, we love you. We trust you. Lord, and I ask that something come out of today that will be truly helpful, life-changing for somebody. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Please grab a seat. So glad you're able to come and be here. So we started off the year, we're in March already, and we've had two series that we've looked at, um, you know, as we sort of kicked off in January, and we started by looking at the series on worship. How many of you remember the series on worship? It wasn't too long ago, so hopefully we do. The series on worship to get the year off to a good start, and as part of that series, we kind of shuffled up a little bit our service order, and so we sort of started off with the message and then had a time of worship afterwards, and as you can tell from today, we've continued doing that, Um, you know, so I guess when you turn up to church, you'll never know what's going to happen. But we have continued that, and then following that, we got finished last weekend, our friend John Ganan came and spoke and finished off a three-week series about getting back to the book, about getting back into the Bible, this belief that believers really should dig in and be back into good old-fashioned Bible reading. And it's no coincidence that we started the year by presenting to the church the need to have a heart of worship and a dependency and a commitment to dig in to the Bible. So over the past few weeks, I've been thinking a lot, and it's been heavy on my mind, that I believe wholeheartedly, and I'm trusting, that the U.S. is on the edge of a nationwide revival. I, I, I believe, I trust, I'm hoping, I'm praying that there is going to be a mass returning to God. And I believe that the best way for us all to be ready is to restore a heart of worship and get back to the Bible. So over the past few weeks, with all this being heavy on my mind, I've been uh, taking notes and I've been keeping track of certain scriptures that have just been leaping out to me that I think are pertinent and particularly applicable for our generation. And I've been writing these down over the past few weeks. And so uh, to this week and then also next week, I'm going to try and make sense of all these scriptures that I've just been putting down and try and give some kind of flow and some kind of order to them. So there's some things I'm going to touch on today that will be touched on lightly that we'll look at in greater detail next week. But I want to start by presenting to you There's a consistent promise within the Bible. If you were to look over the scope of the Bible, there is a consistent promise. I want to read a few examples. There are many more that I didn't make a note of. But signing Genesis 17, I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you from generation to generation. This is the everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And then into Exodus, I will claim you as my own people and I will be your God. Leviticus, I will walk among you. I will be your God and you will be my people. Jeremiah, but this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And then to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. There are many of the verses we could say that echo that same thought, but I want to present to you as we get started today that there's a consistent promise of the Bible. I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is God's promise. This is God's commitment 
that despite me not deserving his love, despite all my sinfulness and imperfections and selfishness, God is working in and through human history to make it possible for me to live, for you to live with him as our God and for us to be his people. This all culminates on the cross. This is greatly demonstrated on the cross when Jesus Christ, God's son, takes on the sin of the world and he suffers the punishment that we deserve. And even though he died on the cross three days later, he rose again from the grave, conquering the power of sin and death once and for all. And that gives people the ability to live with God as their God and to live as his people, both now and into eternity. Now, I've been in some kind of church leadership for 20 years now, and there's something that I've observed, and the more I observe and the more I look, I become more and more convinced of something. And what I become more and more convinced of is that everybody wants Jesus, even if they don't know it. Everybody, no exceptions, everybody wants Jesus, even if they don't know it. Now, you may push back at that and say, well, how can you make such a generalized sweeping statement like that? How can you make such a universal claim like that simply because everyone wants to live like their life matters? Everyone wants to live with a sense of purpose. Everyone wants to live with peace and hope. Everyone wants to live with a confidence about their eternity. Everyone wants to live with a clear conscience. No one wants to feel lost and abandoned. No one wants to be lied to and deceived. No one wants their life to crash and experience death and misery. Everyone wants Jesus because in him, humanity can find peace, hope, and forgiveness. This is all found in Jesus and nowhere else. There's been a few things in my mind over the last few weeks that has really kind of caused me to think like this and really kind of pray through all this. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, sort of get all these scriptures written down. One of them is that um, Megan shared a message a few weeks ago on the Bible series. And one of the things that Megan said in that message is the Bible brings freedom because the Bible brings truth. And as part of that message, Megan considered the need for biblical truth to be at the core and at the center for this generation. I've also been watching and paying attention to an incredible outpouring and a significant awakening happening at Asbury Universities. And that gave me a renewed passion and renewed uh, awareness and a renewed hunger for what God can do. I also had a chance to watch the movie Jesus Revolution. Uh, Jesus Revolution is a wonderful movie. I can't recommend it enough. And I read the book this past summer and had no idea at the time that a movie was coming. And since I found out, I've been highly anticipating it. But the movie tells the true story of a revival that started in California and swept across the United States. 1969 was a troubled time in America. The hippie movement was a burgeoning, which meant a lot of social norms were upended. The young people of the day were doing things differently than they'd done in years past. There was lots of sleeping around, taking drugs, especially LSD. Young people felt more and more like the world their parents created for them didn't fit anymore. This sent a generation on a pursuit of truth, love, and peace. And when the world came up empty, people turned to Jesus. One man specifically, a man by the name of Chuck Smith, who was a regular, boring, middle-aged conservative preacher who I do not identify with at all, met with a young hippie street preacher named Lonnie Frisbee. Chuck and Lonnie worked together and threw open the doors of Chuck's church in California and saw thousands and thousands of hippies find the peace, love, and truth they were searching for, and they found it in Jesus. It wasn't found in free love. It wasn't found in getting high. It was found in Jesus. And working with thousands of hippies was complicated and messy, both figuratively and literally. And many stuffy, churchy types objected. The hippies were unchurched and didn't arrive at church with their lives straightened out. They came just as they were. And Chuck's church and Lonnie's preaching weren't the only expression of what became known of the Jesus movement. What started on the West Coast spread across the nation, including to upstate New York. And I have heard some stories from the people in our church of how they were saved as part of the Jesus movement. It's estimated that over 250,000 young people were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit during this revival. And I believe it can happen again. I believe God can move in our generation. Just like the 60s and 70s, our country is divided. There's a lack of trust in the government and the institutions. We've just withdrawn from a long and unpopular war. 
the values and priorities of young people and their parents don't appear to line up, and yet the promise still stands. I will be their God and they will be my people. Not only is there a promise, there's an open invitation to live in and experience that promise. A few verses for you. Matthew 5, verse 6 from the Amplified Bible. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who actively seek right standing with God, for they will be completely satisfied. From the book of Revelation. The spirit and the bride say, come, let anyone who hears this say, come, let anyone who is thirsty, come, let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. In Matthew 11, then Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Those who are hungry and desperate to restore a right relationship with God will be blessed and satisfied. Anyone that's thirsty can drink freely. If you're carrying heavy burdens, you can put them down. If you're feeling the pressure and weight of the world, you can breathe again. Those who are tired and worn out, you can find rest. You are invited. This generation that we're all a part of, is more tired, exhausted, stressed, weighed down, anxious, confused, aimless, and addicted, more so than any generation that has ever gone before us. The world is screaming solutions to all of this, and none of it is working. Apparently, if I can become an influencer, or if I can get the right fit, or if I can impress enough girls, if I can make enough money on my side hustle, maybe porn will help, maybe getting high will help, maybe a journey of self-discovery will help, maybe rallying behind a political cause will help, and we're all seeing that the proverb we know well is coming true. There is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. And this proverb, it addresses this problem at an individual level. But I would suggest that this is not only happening for individuals, but we are seeing this happen en masse in America today. We could read this proverb as there is a path before the culture that seems right, but it ends in death. Despite trying everything that we're told will help, this generation is still more tired, exhausted, stressed, weighed down, anxious, confused, aimless, and addicted more than any generation that has gone before us. But it seems right. If culture seems right, how does the church help? The church is supposed to be a lighthouse, but we're a part of a generation that aren't worried about their boat crashing into the rocks. The church is supposed to be a hospital, but people don't realize they're sick. The church is supposed to be the light, but for many, they believe hope and peace is found in the darkness. The church is supposed to be a place of refuge, but we're watching a generation that is looking to the same world that has beaten them up for love and acceptance. The church is supposed to declare the good news of Jesus, but the world isn't listening. We're watching a generation who hears Jesus saying, those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again, and they reply, I'm not thirsty, I'm going back to eating sand. Essentially, what can be easily observed is we're in a generation that is desperate, hungry, and exhausted. And the church needs to figure out how we can communicate the gospel in a way that meaningfully shows that Jesus is indeed the answer to the question you are not asking. He is the solution to the problem you might not care about, but you're definitely experiencing. And there's an important verse that I want to cling on to and share with you. It's from John's Gospel. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this verse, it's a well-known verse, it's a popular verse, it's the kind of verse that you put on a coffee cup. But it doesn't just sound nice, it's important because as we look back at the proverb we read a moment ago, I've paraphrased this a little bit. There is a path, this is addressing the idea of someone being lost, there is a path before the culture that seems right. It seems right, but it's not true. It's a lie, but it ends in death. There is a path lost before the culture that seems right, lies, but it ends in death. Consequently, if we are lost, believing lies, and heading towards death, we need the way because we're lost. We need the truth because we believe lies, and we need life because we're choosing death. My friends, this cannot be just a theory. This cannot be just empty words. 
The degree of hurt and pain and confusion out in the world cannot be remedied with a bumper sticker or a slogan on a t-shirt. This is why Paul wrote to two of the churches, for the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk, it is living by God's power. And to the Thessalonians, he also wrote, for when we brought you the good news, it was not only with words, but also with power. For the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. To the early churches, Paul writes that the message of Jesus wasn't just a well-packaged presentation, but it was backed up by the power of the Holy Spirit. The world doesn't need a shallow, surface-level adjustment. We need a spiritual awakening, a true move of the Spirit, a move of power, not just empty talk. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, there's power in that. Believing this truth has the power to change your life. Our role as a church is to point people to Jesus. Our role is to point lost people to Jesus. Our responsibility is to point people who have deeply believed lies to Jesus. Our calling is to help people who are hurtling towards death and destruction and show them Jesus because he is the way, truth, and life. If we as a church are going to fulfill our call and point people to Jesus, is an underlying condition we need to be okay with. From the book of Romans, don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Love people in the middle of the brokenness. Love people while they're still clinging to their sins and addictions. Love people despite their anger at God and the church. Love people as they wrestle with their confusion and questions. Love people even if they keep running back to the things that are causing them so much pain. Love people while they don't think the message of Jesus has anything to do with them at all. If we truly love people, not just pretending, but really loving people, I believe we can be faithful and effective appointing people to Jesus. And what's our role in this? As the church of Jesus, what's our responsibility is we love people and fulfill the mission we're called to. People who are lost, we point them to Jesus and give direction. People who believe lies, we point them to Jesus and give correction. People heading towards destruction and death, we point them to Jesus and give protection. The church points people to Jesus and gives direction, correction, and protection. And preachers around the world love it when things rhyme. The world likes direction and protection, but not correction. I'm going to guess that even as I said direction, protection, and correction, correction stood out. It certainly did for me as I was writing this down. But with a good conscience, I couldn't leave it out. I'm going to guess that for a lot of people listening to this, the very notion that a part of the church's mission is to correct faulty, incorrect, and untrue thinking is deeply uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable because you know it'll easily cause upheaval. We know it'll cause upset. People will welcome some encouragement about the way we should go. People will welcome the church trying to help people avoid devastation and death, but no matter what, don't ever tell me I'm wrong. I'll take some advice on the way to go. I appreciate some help when life gets too much, but don't ever tell me I'm wrong. This, I believe, is the tension that the modern day church is called to navigate. How do we rescue people that don't agree they need rescuing? How do we love people who believe we hate them? How do we have a voice around ethics and morality when the world is telling us to shut up? How do we help people undo the lies of the world when the lies are being screamed from all corners of culture and from the most influential voices in society? How do we proclaim that we have a life-changing message to a world that simply doesn't trust us? How do we disciple people so they are strong enough to swim against the tide of culture? How do we preach a message of forgiveness and grace to a community that doesn't think they've done anything wrong? How do we say, love your neighbor, when people hate each other if they voted differently from them? Now, these aren't questions that I have easy answers to, but I want to keep asking them until we figure out how we are going to fulfill our calling. And our calling is to go into all the world and make disciples. We need direction, correction, and protection. We need Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. I've got three ways I want to share with you 
Three ways the church points people to Jesus. First one, direct the last and point to the way. When Jesus called the disciples, he simply said, follow me, and that call hasn't changed. When Jesus called the disciples, they weren't experts in anything. There was so much they didn't know, but they got started. They followed Jesus. They lived with him as the way, one step at a time, one day at a time, with all their questions, all their doubts, all their confusion. Follow me. That was the call from Jesus. Follow me today. Get started. Not after they figured it all out. Not after they had a satisfactory answer to every question they had. Not after they addressed every sinful behavior. But start, follow me. For people who are lost and aimless. People who are drifting. Those who are isolated and stuck. People who are lonely and disconnected. Anyone who lacks a purpose. People who don't have a sense of passion in their lives. They need direction. They need someone to follow. And there is no shortage of people who will gladly collect followers and subscribers. But what's needed is to be firmly set on following the way, a daily commitment to follow Jesus. When you point to Jesus and give direction, it's not a set of coordinates or a point on the compass, it's someone to follow. It's a life with purpose. Churches are filled with people who just reach a point where they said, I'm done drifting. I'm done just breezing through life. Maybe they were part of some crazy dysfunction, maybe not, but they were just done. I know that's a story of a lot of people here. It certainly describes my experience of coming to faith. I needed someone to follow because drifting was messing me up. This is the story of so many believers. It makes me think about all the people wandering through life right now that they are primed for a life-changing encounter with Jesus. One of the ways we can help is direct the lost and point to the way. Second thing, three ways the church points people to Jesus. Number two, correct the lies and point to the truth. In the last... I would say 20 or 30 years, the church's values and morality have diverged from the world's, and truthfully, the church hasn't figured out what to do about that. 20 or 30 years ago, what the church believed and thought was right and wrong was agreed upon by society, and that took a divergence, and the church really hasn't figured out what to do with that. After centuries of culture looking to the church and a biblical worldview to understand morality and an idea of right and wrong, those days are over. Some churches have continued to preach a stern and strict condemnation of sin. Other churches have taken the word sin out of their dictionaries altogether. And I think it's fair to say that decades of observance have shown that neither of these approaches have been effective in making disciples. As we read earlier, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Really loving people includes the difficult work of walking with people as they unravel the lies they have believed. Lies about the world, lies about themselves, lies about God. Helping people undo the lies in their life is complicated, it's messy, it's painful, but it's an essential part of the church's call. To point people to Jesus means pointing people to the truth. If we love people, we will tell them the truth out of care and concern for them. We'll be patient and careful with how we communicate. We'll resist the temptation to prove a point. Our heart will be to help people. We're not winning or losing an argument. We're pointing people to Jesus to save them from devastation. The most destructive lie the devil ever told is I can help. The most destructive lie the devil ever told is I can help. It's leading people to think that something that will kill them could actually help them. Now, British people around the world, especially in Britain, that was a weird way to say that. <laughs> British people love drinking tea. The stereotype is completely true. I am no exception to this. In my house, at all times, you have this uh, a massive stock of British tea that I buy in bulk. Now, Megan is not British. Um, she's not pretending the American accent. She really is American. <laughs> but Megan will drink this iced tea. I don't know what she puts in it. It's gross. As far as I'm concerned, if your tea's cold, it's because you left it out too long, but she likes it. Now, I hate it. I've tried it. It's gross. It's nasty. But anyway, if I want to drink, uh, Megan says, try this. And I drink it, and it's gross. And then she says, no, 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 you just got to drink more. <laughs> but it's disgusting. Drink more. <laughs> Still gross. Just 
keep drinking it. It makes no sense. It makes no sense. In the same way on um, YouTube, you may have seen videos of people that have tried cutting their own hair. Leave your bangs alone. Let the professionals handle it. What makes it even worse is that after somebody has tried cutting their own hair, make a complete mess out of it, then they try to fix it themselves. For the love of all that's good and holy, stop. You're not going to trim your way out of this. You need a wig or you need a professional. Like it is, you're not going to be the reason this gets fixed. The key is to stop. The key to the gross, nasty tea that my wife loves so much is to stop drinking it. The key to fixing your hair is not keep cutting it yourself. The key is to stop, not to keep going. And yet, the devil, somehow, the lie of the world of I can help, and even when people find out it is flat out untrue, the solution continues to be, you just gotta do a little bit more. You just gotta keep going. My friends, that is not the key. The key is stop, do not keep going. Get out of the car that is going down the wrong side of the highway. If you have found out the hard way or you've seen the lives of others that sin is devastating, please stop, get help, believe that there is a better way. We need to stop believing the lies that if you keep drinking the gross tea or if you just trim a little more off our hair, then we'll feel content and fulfilled. Please, we need to be honest and embrace that it's time to stop. When I spoke on this verse of I am the way, the truth, and the life over the summer, I said something that stuck with me. I don't want to repeat it for you today. And this is talking about Jesus' claim that I am the truth. For someone to claim I am the truth, it must mean that there are absolutely no falsehoods within them. They neither tell lies nor believe lies. They only believe the truth and have only ever said the truth. The only thoughts they have are true. The only motives they have are honest. Lies and deception and manipulation don't fool them for the slightest moment. And not a single utterance they make is intended to mislead, misrepresent, manipulate, or deceive. They have never been untruthful and could never be untruthful. That person has the words of life because every word is true and every word corrects a lie. And there is only one person who can ever make such a claim and be taken seriously, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior. Three ways the church points people to Jesus. Number one, direct the lost and point to the way. Number two, correct the lies and point to the truth. And number three, protect from death and point to the life. Protect from death and point to the life. We don't hate sin because we're angry and judgmental. We hate sin because we love people, and sin destroys people's lives. And if you and I were to think about the basic needs of humanities, the things that we need to survive, Things like water, food, shelter, and security. Now, you may be able to find instances where this is less than perfect, but it's indisputable that it's better now than it has ever been. We've got a greater access to water, food, and shelter than any generation that's gone before us. And yet, we're a part of the most anxious, stressed out, depressed, lonely, discouraged, unfulfilled generation that we know about. My, uh, my experience on a missions trip is very similar to many people that have been on an overseas missions trip to a developing nation. I went to India, uh, this is maybe 18 years ago now, and um, while I was in India, we visited some of the slums in the city where we were uh, visiting, and as I was there, I saw some kids playing cricket, and they were playing cricket with trash they'd picked up off the street, and I joined in, and they were way better than I am, but that's another typical British story that we get beat at sports. But I was playing cricket with trash with these kids, and they could not have been happier. Now, my story is very similar to many, many other people that have been on missions trips overseas to developing countries that kids that are living in slums and they've got nothing, they're, they're making toys out of trash, and yet they're so full of joy. And the perspective I want to have is that instead of ranting about how terrible American kids are, we should be honest and even empathetic that something important is missing, that despite having everything we need to be happy and content, we're miserable. If you've got everything you need and you're still unhappy, there's something deeper going on. Now, I'm not addressing specific instances. I'm deliberately using broad strokes. But it brings me back to everyone wants Jesus, even if they don't know it. Because that's where hope is found. That's where purpose comes from.
Identity is not found in the court of public opinion. Identity is not found on TikTok. It's not found in a political party. Identity is not found in a career. But it's found in a restorative relationship with the creator of the universe. And what does it mean for the church to protect? For the church to protect, it means we're okay with your starting point. For the church to protect, it means we care about your future. It means we believe in your potential. It's a promise that you will get second chances. It means that we'll be patient with you, that your questions won't put us off, that we won't define you by your mistakes. We'll protect you by sticking with you. We'll protect you by showing grace upon grace. If you're wondering or doubt whether our generation needs protection from the world, take a few minutes of honestly watching life happen around you. It's plain as day to see that the culture the world is embracing does not lead to life. The promise is empty and it's devastating people. If you don't believe me or agree with me, just watch, just observe. For the church, we need to protect people from the traps that are being set in the world. Three ways the church points people to Jesus. One, direct the lost and point to the way. Two, correct the lies and point to the truth. Three, protect from death and point to life. Now the difference between this being nice sounding preacher talk and reality is believers embracing this. I listened to a message this past week on the subject of revival and churches that have seen great revival and movements of God that have happened in, the 20, in, you know, in, in modern culture. And what this person said is that revival really happens in the church. We can sometimes think the revival means that people that don't know God are just going to suddenly come pounding down the door. And this person will say, no, no that's, that's the wrong way to think about it. Revival is the church getting revived. And when the church is revived and the church is passionately seeking after the God and the church is leaving behind whatever stuff they need to leave behind and they are running full-hearted for God and there's a passion that is swelling up, if that is happening within the churches, then the people outside cannot help but want to come see what on earth is going on in that church. Revival is within us. It is within the church. And Megan spoke a few weeks ago in this message that's been on my mind a lot. And she said that the world isn't going to run to the church because we look like the world, but rather because we look different. The world might reject tradition. They might reject longstanding truth. The world gives false hope and has a selfish vision of what purpose and meaning looks like. The world might have a relative or evolving sense of morality or self-control. The world may have reduced the concept of peace to a bumper sticker that no one gives any thought to. But the church being different from the world is what the world needs. The church should embrace our ancient traditions and long-held beliefs. The church should be overflowing with hope and be filled with people discovering a sense of meaning and living out their purpose. The church should joyfully embrace a biblical morality, not because it's constrictive, but because it will lead us to life and not death. The church should be the place where God's promise of peace is not only experienced by the few, but is spreading to the many. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. One of the great things about this verse that I wonder if it gets said often enough is that Jesus ends this with no one can come to the Father except through me. Now, for years, I heard that verse, and I interpreted that to mean no one gets to heaven except through me. But that isn't what we just read. No one comes to the Father. At the heart of the gospel message, at the heart of the message of Jesus, the heart behind the cross, is that there is a broken relationship between humanity and the Father. And Jesus came to restore that. If we think about it this way, heaven is the house that the Father owns and is in charge of. But he's the Father. The thought and the temptation for us is to fall in this line of thinking of, I just want access to the house. But what we need to remember and what's important for us is what's first and foremost is we need to repair the relationship with the Father. When that relationship is repaired, of course you come into the house. Amen. Of course there's room for you. Of course there's a place that I have prepared for you. But first and foremost, the message of Jesus is about a rep repairing a broken relationship between God and humanity. It's a well-known story that Jesus told, many of you all know this very well, the story of the prodigal son. Luke 15, 11. To illustrate this point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. 
So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Essentially, the younger son has come and said, Dad, I want to live as if you were dead. I want your money, and I'm getting out of this house. Verse 13, a few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. He found out the hard way that the proverb we read earlier continues to be true. There is a path before each person that seems right, but ends in death. Packing up belongings, moving to a distant land, wasting money in wild living seemed like the right path, but he found out it ends in death. Verse 14, about this time his money ran out. A great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. Finally, he came to his senses and said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. My friends, this generation needs more pigsty moments. We need more moments where in the pigsty, people are coming to their senses and looking around them, and they are coming to the conclusion, what in the world am I doing? Why am I still here? Why aren't I doing everything and anything to get out of this? They came to their senses. That's what we just read. He came to his senses. I got to get out of here. We need more pigsty moments. Now, of course, the best thing is that people never end up in the pigsty. But for millions and millions of people, they need a pigsty moment. A moment where they open their eyes and see their reality for what it is. An absolute mess. If there is only one thing we can and should pray for our generation is the realization that the pigsty is an awful place to be. And the good news of Jesus, the greatest news the world will ever hear is that you, me, anyone has an open invitation to get out of the pigsty. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who actively seek right standing with God, for they will be completely satisfied. Those who are hungry and desperate to restore a right relationship with God will be blessed and satisfied. There's an invitation to get out of the pigsty. Matthew 11, I'll read it again. Then Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. If you're carrying heavy burdens, feeling the pressure and weight of the world, those who are tired and worn out, you are invited. You can come to your senses and get out of the pigsty. The yoke that Jesus talks about it was a big, heavy harness that would allow a farmer to pair up livestock, typically oxen, so they could plow a field together, being more effective and have a greater level of strength, as you can imagine. But the idea of a yoke had become a popular metaphor and a way of talking about being constrained and overworked. Jesus is presenting himself as a contrast to the pressure of the world. The world is exhausting, tiring, full of pressure and stress. And Jesus is saying, Following me is not like that. There's relief, there's rest, there's a chance to recover and breathe easy, and there's an invitation for you. Back to the prodigal son. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. The prodigal son is in good company. The Bible is full of people who had an honest assessment about themselves and concluded they were not worthy of God's goodness. John the Baptist said, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal straps. Peter, after miraculously catching a ton of fish, said, Lord, please leave me. I'm such a sinful man. A Roman centurion who asked Jesus to heal his servant said, he is not worthy. Isaiah in the temple, when he's called to go and be God's messenger, says, you've got the wrong guy. Very similar to Moses at the burning bush. Not me, you've got this wrong. Paul called himself the chief of sinners and not worthy to be an apostle. The parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. It's the tax collector who knows he's not worthy, not the prideful Pharisee that goes home justified. 
And it all points to this remarkable truth that the qualification for receiving God's grace is knowing you do not qualify for God's grace. The qualification for receiving God's grace is knowing you do not qualify for God's grace. It is the single greatest paradox in the world. When we come to our senses and admit, I have messed this up. I have no one to blame for living in the pigsty except myself. And I would crawl on my hands and knees and grovel just to be a servant. Until we get there, the message of Jesus doesn't make sense. Until we realize how desperately we need a savior, we won't respond to the message of the cross with gratitude. Only when we admit that we don't deserve God's forgiveness or his compassion, but we have nowhere else to turn. Only then can we understand grace. We see this modeled by the son as he goes home and pleads with his father. I'm not worthy. I can't pretend I am, but I've got nowhere else to turn. Will you please show me some hint of compassion? I'm begging you for anything that will get me out of the pigsty. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. He was lost, but he found the way. He stopped believing the lies, and now his eyes are wide open to the truth. And we're gonna party because he has rejected death and found life. My favorite Psalm is Psalm 113. Who can be compared with the Lord our God who is enthroned on high? He stoops to look down on heaven and on earth. He lifts the poor from the dust and the needy from the garbage dump. He sets them among princes, even the princes of his own people. For Jesus, telling the story of the prodigal son, that's not the end. Verse 25, meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants, what's going on? Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf? His father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. When Jesus first told this parable, the people he was correcting and challenging were the religious leaders. I think this parable should remain a challenge to us churchy types. Do we have the same attitude and disposition as the older brother? Do we want God's free-flowing blessing, grace, and goodness in my life, but for him to hold back from those we decide are unworthy? It's such an ugly thing for me to want the grace and forgiveness of God that I don't deserve, and yet at the same time, I also want to be able to decide who else should or should not be shown the grace and love of God. I read this verse towards the beginning of the message today. Revelation twenty-two seventeen, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, let anyone who hears this say, Come, let anyone who is thirsty come, let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. The Holy Spirit says, Come, let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. But it says in the verse, Let the Spirit and the bride. The Spirit is the Holy Spirit, but who's the bride? bride is the church. Yes, God is saying, come, let anyone who is thirsty come, let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. But the bride, the church, we are supposed to be saying the exact same thing. 
this was something that was exposed during the Jesus movement and depicted very well in the movie, is that churches weren't saying, come, let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. But when they started, when they started joining with the Holy Spirit and said, come, anyone, come on, then amazing things started to happen. The church is to echo the heart of God, to say, come to Jesus, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and He will give you rest. Take His yoke upon you. Let Him teach you because He is humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For His yoke is easy to bear, and the burden He gives you is light. Now, I'm heading towards 40, and definitely becoming older and not younger. I don't want to shake my head in disdain for this generation, but instead I want to recognize that there's a lot of untold pain. I don't want to dismiss kids today as being a lost cause, but to see college students and high schoolers and young professionals as people to care about. We can look around us and conclude that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, or we can see the greatest opportunity that the church could dream of. We can look around and see people doing the most destructive things, or we can see hurting people that need help. We can be hopeless at the lack of morality and the fact that the lack of morality is running rampant through our society, or we can listen and find out why people are abandoning the sense of right and wrong that used to be commonplace. Shepherds aren't scared of messy sheep. Shepherds clean them up. It feels like every week or even every day there's something new in the news or on social media that we could easily be discouraged with. You may have even have a loved one that's caught up in something destructive and it's very easy to become outraged or hopeless. The tension of the modern church is to walk the tightrope of sharing the truth to a generation of people who refuse to be told they're wrong. I believe we're going to see more and more pigsty moments, crowds of people coming to their senses. We need to be committed to sharing the message of the gospel in a way the people who need to hear it will listen. I truly believe, and I have for a long time, I believe that people will wake up. People aren't stupid. If we take the Bible seriously, and we do, then the wages of sin is death. Many people will start to look around them and see the disappointment, the despair, the wasted years, and realize that there has to be more to life. People will come to their senses and realize this is not how life is supposed to be. And friends, if we tell people that we have a message that will change their lives, we better be ready with a message that will change their lives. We need to be ready to point people to Jesus. We need direction, correction, and protection. We need Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. I got a couple of questions for you. If you're in the habit of writing these down, I encourage you to do so. If you're not in the habit, start today. Something to think about, reflect upon, pray about this week. The first thing I want to put to you is how will you act when someone comes home before during or after a pigsty moment? How will you act when someone comes home before, during, or after a pigsty moment? It won't be clean. It won't be neat. But I believe it's going to happen. And I believe it's going to happen a lot. Second thing, are you extending God's invitation to people? Are you extending God's invitation to people? There is an open invitation. Come to me, all of you who are weary. Blessed are those that are seeking a right relationship with God. You will be satisfied. Holy Spirit and the bright say come. Are we extending that invitation? We need, in our generation, in our time, we need a wave of evangelists to rise up. We need a wave of evangelists to rise up, not people that are hungry to get on a stage and have crowds of people and have packed altars so they can pat themselves on the back that they had a packed altar. We need people that have a deep care and concern for people, people that have a true love for people, people that are gifted by the Spirit of God to let people know the good news of Jesus, people that are inviters and people that are gatherers and people that will bring people to a place where they will hear the good news of Jesus. If you have a call to be an evangelist, let you know, I want to let you know I am praying for you. We need evangelists to rise up in this generation. We need people with prophetic edge to rise up in this environment, in this generation, so they can give the truth in a way that people will hear it. People that are gifted by God to confront what's going on and to be said in a way that it is heard and it is received. We need believers to see people with just a glimpse of the love that God has for them. John 14, 6, Jesus told him, I am the way 
the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Leviticus 26, I will walk among you. I will be your God and you will be my people. First Corinthians, for the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk, it is living by God's power. Thessalonians, for when we brought you the good news, it was not only with words but also with power. For the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. Romans 12, 9. Don't just pretend to love others, really love them. And I firmly believe everybody wants Jesus, even if they don't know it. And the qualification for receiving God's grace is knowing you do not qualify for God's grace. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Would you stand with me as I read this? Then Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. Come to me, all of you who are worn out by life, who are tired of the pressure of fitting in. All of you who are done, you're done being exhausted, you're done trying to keep up with the lies that you're telling everybody, you're done with being one person in one room and another person in another. You're done hoping your parents don't find out that thing. You're done hoping that your friends never see the real you. You're done. You're done being weary and carrying heavy burdens. The promise from Jesus is, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you. Let me teach you a better way. Because I'm humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Lord, I believe that this is not just empty words. Lord, I believe there's power in this, because it's your truth. Lord, I know that if I stood up here and shared my opinions on things, it would wouldn't be worth anything. But Lord, as we consider the weight of the scriptures today, the truth of what you did on the cross for us 2,000 years ago, the truth that there is an invitation for us to live with you as our God and for us to be your people. Lord, please may there be power behind that, the people feel in their lives. Lord, this is not just empty words. Lord, I pray that people would feel the power of the Holy Spirit at work through all this. Lord, as we spend time worshiping and focusing on you and lifting our hearts and lifting the cry of our hearts to you, Lord, speak to your people. Do something truly amazing in our hearts in this moment. In Jesus' incredible name, amen, amen. Come on, everybody, let's get back into a moment of worship together.